So, continuing our study from last week. We are looking at the fact that um, we're moving on from some of the stuff we've been looking at in terms of history of these things, moving on toward the source of where problems in life come from. So the first point you see there in your notes is that sin is the fundamental or basic source of problems in life. This is important because if the basic cause of problems in life is something like lack of teaching, then we need education. If the basic source of problems in life is societal structure, then we need people to fix that. But if the basic source of problems in life is sin, God has answers for that in the Bible, and that gives us hope. Um, so, where did sin begin? Sin began with Satan. Satan rejected God's perfect world and God's design for his glory. Obviously, Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27 God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them rule over all things. God created man in his image. And then the chapter closes out by saying, and everything was very good. Satan rejected this plan and this purpose by God and instead decided he was going to go his own way. Isaiah 43, verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have called, created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made, God made all things to glorify him, and Satan rejected that design. As a result, he rebelled against God. And uh, we see that, for example, in Ezekiel 28. And uh, some would also say Isaiah 14 as well. So Ezekiel 28, we see this statement that in verse 12, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Thus says the Lord God, you have the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Skipping down, you are the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. Verse 15, you are blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And then verse 16 has, by the abundance of your trade, you are filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. There's this this interweaving of condemnation against Tyre and their oppression of the peoples around them with regards to trade and their rejection of God and a parallel being drawn to Satan and his rejection of God. And so um, there's much that could be said about that we won't go into. But the bottom line would be Satan rejected God's plan, rebelled against him, and sinned. Satan therefore received punishment. The I cast you to the ground, I put you before kings that they may see you. Verse 17, 
there is a definite statement of God's judgment against Satan. He will be finally and fully defeated. We see this in Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And we're not just saying that a child of a woman would step on a snake, but rather that Satan himself would be broken in terms of his power. <coughs> we see this as well later in, for example, Revelation 20 and verse 10. But we also see in the book of Colossians that Satan's defeat is certain, even though it has not been fully carried out. So sin began with Satan, but sin also impacted humanity directly through, through Adam. We see this in Genesis 3, for example. We're familiar with the story, God said, don't eat the fruit. Adam and Eve both ate the fruit. Technically, Eve took it, gave it to Adam. Adam ate it. God comes and says, what have you done? They said we hid because we were afraid and because we had shame of nakedness. And, and God says, why? And so Adam says, Eve. And Eve says, the snake. And God says, and here's the curse of sin. So, spiritual death enters the world as a result of this. Romans 5.12, by one man sin entered in the world and death through sin. And so there's a sense in which Satan's sin did not enter into the world because Satan was in God's presence. He wasn't in the world per se. And so the sin that impacted the world most directly was the sin of Adam and Eve. This meant that the curse of sin marred the world. Thorns and thistles and sweat of your brow and pain and childbirth and all of the other things that come along with it, disease and sickness and death. Um, Romans 8, 8 says, The whole creation groans under this burden even until now. So, death enters the world. The curse of sin mars the world. Humans are born into sin. Psalm 58.3 says we come forth from the womb speaking lies. Romans 5.18 says we all sin. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our sin. As a result, we receive also, not only are we born into sin, but we practice sin. All of sin and fall short of God's glory. As a result, we receive punishment for that sin. The wages of sin is death. It is appointed man wants to die. After this comes judgment. So the only solution to sin is found in the work of Christ. He became sin on our behalf that we might become God's righteousness in him. This secures victory over sin's penalty, sin's power, and sin's presence. Any Thoughts or questions so far? I'm sure this none of this is anything anybody would disagree with, but, um, okay. Sin's effects continue today in terms of the world. Society is corrupted. There is a sense in which the world is opposed to God and fights against God, and we recognize this. For example, John 15, verse 19 if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. This is not a statement that everyone who is not a Christian will immediately try to go to the extremes that the Jews did toward Christ or that uh, later groups did toward Christians in various places, but it does mean that there is an, an inherent opposition between God's people and the world system that is opposed to him. So society is corrupted. 
those around us commit personal acts of sin. We see this, for example, in the story of Jonah. And those personal acts of sin have an impact not only on the person committing the sin, but on the people around them. And then number three, sin pervasively corrupts our thoughts. The fool says in his heart, no God for me, Romans 1, God gives them over to a depraved mind. Sin corrupts our actions. We see vice lists several times in the Bible. For example, 1 Corinthians 9. And it corrupts our desires or feelings. We see anger. We see uh, worry. We see fear. These things flow out of the corruption of sin in our lives. Physical suffering touches everyone to varying degrees. The story of the man born blind is a perfect example of this in that when questioned on it, Jesus said, this man did not sin nor his parents in that sin was not the specific reason or cause of his blindness. But essentially, he says, God created him blind from the womb so that at this moment he could show his glory in him. And that's a difficult thing for us to consider because I think we would all agree to see is better than to be blind. So why would God subject someone to that for 30 or 40 years? And the answer is so that he could demonstrate his power at that specific time and so that the man would trust in Christ and some purposes like that. Again, I'm not sure that we can fully come to terms with that, but we at least have to recognize that that's what that passage says. So, we also see the flesh, Romans 7. I find a law within myself that when I want to do what's right, I find myself often doing what is wrong. This ties into number three above, perhaps could even go there, that sin affects the entirety of our being. Um, when I s Going back to the idea of sin pervasively corrupting us, sometimes people will say, well, not everybody's as bad as they could be, so that means that we're not really totally de corrupt or depraved. And what that essentially means is that we are bound by our nature to act out various kinds of sin, not that everyone sins as much as they could possibly do. And one other comment on suffering. Suffering is often not the immediate fault, I guess we could say, of the person going through a particular circumstance. Peter holds out the possibility that we can suffer because we've done wrong. If I steal, if I kill, if I commit adultery, if I lie, I will suffer sooner or later for those choices that I've made. And in that case, the suffering is bound up in sin. But other kinds of suffering, like the man born blind in similar situations, the suffering is not immediately bound up with our sin just more the presence of sin in the world generally. Um, along those lines, I think that we have to be careful when we are talking to people neither to excuse suffering that seems to be clearly the result of specifically wrong choices, um, while at the same time not to condemn people where it seems pretty clearly that that is not the occasion of their suffering. And so we have to maintain that balance because on the one hand, we could have a proud person who says, I'm going through this and I don't deserve it. And on the other hand, you could have someone who's just crushed and discouraged because people keep saying, like they said to Job, what have you done wrong? Where have you sinned? There wasn't anything specifically that he had done wrong. 
with regard to the flesh, he was, Paul said he was a slave to God's law, but in his nature a slave to sin. The context of it is no one is saved by keeping the law, but rather only Christ delivers from that bondage. And the Christian is not fully delivered from the presence of sin, even though sin's power has been broken and victory, not defeat, should be his attitude. With regards to the flesh, I think that's important for us to remember because it's easy for us to sort of come to terms with our sin. This is particularly true with um, certain things that seem to dominate someone's life, like homosexuality. They're just like, well, I'm always going to struggle with this. Or maybe earlier in your life, you got drunk a lot or you lied a lot and you're just like I'm always going to struggle with this we have to maintain a balance of recognizing on the one hand we may have a tendency toward a particular type of sin on the other hand God certainly gives us victory over that sin and we shouldn't have like the Alcoholics Anonymous attitude of I am and forever will be a drunk I'm just keeping it at arm's length you know if, if God really changes us, he says you're a new creature. God changes you, so walk in that newness of life. So, number three, the devil. We tend to de-emphasize the work of the devil sometimes because of a materialistic bent in our society and because we've seen people go to crazy extremes in their pursuit of trying to identify Satan as the cause of their troubles. We should recognize what the Bible specifically says. Satan is powerful. He roams about seeking to destroy. He opposes the plans of God. On the other hand, he is not all-knowing, all-powerful, or everywhere present. So we have to hold those two things in tension. So if someone says in China and in Germany and in Florida, at the same time, Satan is tempting me, that may be a misunderstanding of the reach of his power. But if we say there's no connection between the work of Satan in the world and specific temptations or difficulties or all these other sorts of things, then again, we're also not recognizing the extent of his power from the other direction. So, we should recognize that he roams about. We should recognize that he is the God of this world. We should recognize that he is in no way superior to God. We see that, for example, in Job chapter 1. I think it's also important for us to recognize under point C there, number four, God's purpose sovereignly encompasses all of these, the world, the flesh, and the devil, without undermining man's accountability to God. Um, John 9, the man was still responsible for his response to God. Um, Acts 3, the Pharisees were still responsible for their response to God. James 1, we are responsible for our response to God, and God's purpose also envisions the final defeat of sin. We see this in Revelation 21. So in, to sum that up, we could say it this way. God uses sin, but is never its immediate cause, nor is he guilty for the sinful acts of people. This is difficult for us to come to terms with because if we see somebody doing something wrong and we have the power to stop it and that or uh, if we see someone doing something wrong we have the power to stop it and someone later comes up to us and say why didn't you do anything 
there is a sense in perhaps we're at least guilty in part for whatever happened to that other person. Why can't we assess God by that same standard? And the answer would be, along the lines of the answer that God gave to Job and along the lines of the answer that Paul gave to the objector to what he was saying, God is greater than us in his knowledge. God is greater than us in his position. And so God not fixing a situation at a specific point, the reason ultimately that he does so is because he will be glorified in that circumstance according to the way that he acted. You say, how could that possibly be? Somebody, you know, harms an innocent child. How could God possibly be glorified by not striking that person down in that moment? God can accomplish justice in that moment or in a future moment. And we have to say, do I believe that he will do so? Also, God uses, and again, I'm not saying anything like the end justifies the means. God uses the brokenness of this world to drive us to him. Whether we're the one going through that circumstance, whether we're the one who hears about that circumstance, whether we're the one that behaved wrongly in that circumstance. And... You know, we don't necessarily like that. We want the person who's going through difficulty to immediately believe, be relieved from it. If we hear about a situation, we want to feel justified in being angry at God. If we're the one perpetrating the evil, um, we have this sense that that person, should be, that person should be judged. And God will in his time, and God will continue to work in these circumstances. So... These are difficult things for us to think through, but I think we need to wrestle with them. Sin is the basic cause of problems in our lives. If sin is the cause of the problems in our lives, then sanctification is God's solution for the Christian to the problems in our lives. This doesn't overlook the reality that there is a point that comes before sanctification, which is the actual point of salvation. So I suppose there's a sense in which we, broadly speaking, could say salvation is God's solution for, to problems in life. But I said sanctification because that's the broadest, most extensive span of the three stages of salvation. Salvation begins with justification. Uh, Romans 3, 25 and 26 talks about this, that God would justify the one who believes in Jesus. This involves regeneration. It involves regeneration is life to those who are dead. Adoption is uh, being brought into and made part of God's family. Redemption is our sins being paid for to God. Sealing by the Spirit is the security or the certainty of our salvation. And it is connected with, brought about in some respects by faith and repentance. When I list those things out in that way, I am not attempting to um, um, necessarily say that that's the precise order in which all those things occur. I'm just making a list there. Salvation continues throughout life with sanctification. Romans 12 says, 
that we ought to offer ourselves as an acceptable sacrifice to God. And then number three, salvation is complete at death or rapture when Christ returns with glorification, which means that our sin will be done away with fully and we will be perfect in God's presence. You see that in those passages that are listed there. Sanctification involves, therefore, two things, the supernatural work of God and the diligent pursuit of holiness by the Christian. Perhaps the best verse that sort of sums up this seeming contradiction is where Paul says that we must work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. You say, wait a minute, aren't those two things mutually exclusive? No. Why? Well, forgetting God's work shows pride and leads to guilt. The triune God accomplishes salvation, according to Romans 4 and verse 5, and 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. The Spirit primarily accomplishes spiritual growth. This is essential because uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 talks about the sanctification of the Spirit as being an essential part of our salvation. And it is possible for us in the pursuit of spiritual holiness to make it sound like it's all us. So if we deny the power of the Spirit, we are not going to succeed at what God is calling us to do. And then there's also the certainty and the promise that God will continue His work to completion. Philippians 1.6, the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Also 1 John 5.18 says something similar. So on the one hand, if we forget God's work, that leads us to pride and to guilt when we fail. If we neglect our responsibility, it demonstrates laziness and interferes or impedes our maturity. Sanctification is certainly not possible apart from God, but is accomplished through means. When I say means, it's not a concept we talk about a lot. It's a concept that maybe the Puritans in New England would have talked about, like Jonathan Edwards. It's a concept that um, Andrew Fuller talked about with regards to missions. So let's use that as an example. He said, he wrote a book that has a much longer title, but the part I remember is The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation or something like that. And in it he argues, people will be saved because it's God's purpose for them to be saved, but the way that God works that out is by us taking the gospel to them. So we need to do that. That would be an example of means. Something must happen in order to accomplish the end goal. Now, could God theoretically just declare everyone saved without the proclamation of the gospel? Theoretically, but that's not the way he chose to do it. And so when it comes to means, what are the means that God has appointed to accomplish our sanctification? Uh, word, prayer, and fellowship. God uses his word to make us aware of who he is, what we should be, our sin, all of those sorts of things. Um, God uses prayer for us to express our dependence on him as an opportunity for him to grant our request for help. God uses fellowship in the context of the church as a means of strengthening us and helping us towards spiritual growth. Uh, we see this, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together so that you can continue to encourage each other. And in a similar context in Hebrews, that there's this idea of watching out for each other so that we are not plagued by bitterness and wrong results of sin. So 
we need to make use of these means. Furthermore, the fact that God is at work in our sanctification ought to increase or promote our diligence instead of causing us to be lazy. And sometimes people make a similar argument. Well, if God's going to save everybody, why should I bother? The fact that God is going to save people should motivate us all the more because we know what we're doing is going to succeed sooner or later. You know, God said to Paul, I have many people in this city. Keep preaching there. If it's all up to you, nobody might believe. If it's up to God, someone will believe at some point, and so we ought to be faithful in the task that he's given to us. In the same way, with regards to sanctification, if God provides the strength for us, that ought to cause us to be all the more diligent. Thirdly, even though circumstances are often beyond the Christian's control, a godly response is still possible. Uh, Consider the story of Abel, for example. God commanded a sacrifice. Abel brought the right sacrifice and um, was killed for it, essentially, by his brother. Does that mean that um, his response was, was not the right one? No, it, it means that he had the right response regardless of the outcome. Or... For example, Abraham, he was called by God, and he went out, and he was looking for God's purpose. Was there opposition along the way for Abraham? Certainly. Did God help him to overcome it? Yes. Did Abraham sometimes sin in the midst of those circumstances? Yes. But God continued to bring him to repentance and to following him the way that he ought. We come then to... The third point about sanctification, it is progressive in nature. So uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 3, if you would. I think this is an important one for us to think about. I think you've probably heard a lot of times that sanctification is progressive, but why do we say that? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So what's happening in the process of sanctification? Transformation. And what sort of kicks it off, or what is maybe part of the starting point of it? What does it say we do? We see the glory of the Lord. If we take it a step further, where do we see the glory of the Lord today? Obviously, in Jesus' day, people actually saw him face to face. They beheld the glory of the Lord. Where do we see the glory of the Lord today? Okay, or... In the Bible, right? Okay? So as we see Christ, beholding him is part of the process of us desiring to be like him and God making us like him. And so we have both the pattern and the activity of, of becoming like Christ. Turn over to Second Peter chapter 1. 
someone want to read 1 through 11 for me? So do we see a progression in this passage? At the very least, there's a progression of addition, if not a progression of like going up as well. Um, the reason I say that I'm not 100% certain that Peter viewed it as like going up stair steps is because when you compare that to what Paul said about spiritual fruit, uh, there's a sense in which all of those things overlap very well with what Paul said, for example, in Galatians 5. And spiritual fruit is not something where you can like pick and choose, I'm going to have these three things and not the other five. They may be at different stages. They may be um, need development or work in a particular area more than another, but there's a sense in which all of them should be true in our lives. But there is a growth in these things. Peter says you have to supply these things and to add to these things. And why does he say that it's important that we do this? Verse 8. Okay. What's the danger of not having them? Verse 9. Good. And then the call to actually do it, verse 10, is be diligent to make certain about it. If you practice these things, you'll never stumble, and the weight of the kingdom will be abundantly supplied to you. So there's sort of this, there's a little bit of an element of warning here, too. If you don't have any of these things, you ought to question whether you really belong to God. If you do know God, you ought to be striving that these things would be more and more true in your life. What is the basis of us being able to accomplish this, verses 3 and 4.
God's power has given us what? Okay, which I would argue is primarily through his word because it parallels what he says in verse 4, that he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world by lust. So, God's given us everything we need. God's called us to do this. This is a lifelong process. Why do I say it's a lifelong process? Point one there under it being progressive is that there is no... Uh, there is no magic zap that takes place. It says in Colossians 3, verse 9, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices um, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. So we look at it. Uh, Colossians has more of a this has already happened feel to it versus Ephesians uh, 5, which says the same kind of things. But... Um, in both places, the idea is there's a starting point and there's an ongoing process that's taking place. Same thing we saw in, in uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So it's not a stagnation, it's a growth in these things. So, the way that Peter describes it, the way that Paul describes it, sounds like hard work, Right? We would prefer it if it was a pill that you took or just a one-time thing that just happened and then everything was good from that point. Why might it be that God didn't set it up that way? I can't answer this question fully, but what are some possible reasons? We have to depend on Him, because if, if it all happens and then I can do whatever the rest of my life, I don't have much need of an ongoing relationship with God, at least from my perspective, potentially. What else? Yeah. Yeah. What effect does that have on other people if we are faithful in the process? So like I said, I don't think we can answer the question fully, but I think God set it up in part this way so that we constantly need to depend on Him so that others can see our need to depend on Him and so that all together we honor Him more fully instead of um, thinking that we can do it all on our own. There should be fruit. This is important because um, sometimes people will say, there was a guy named Zane Hodges, there's other people since then, Belief is just sort of like mental assent. I agree with this in my mind. I pray to prayer. Everything's good between me and God. It doesn't have to change my life because I know things are right between me and God. Ephesians 2.10 would argue against this. It says that God created us in Him to do good works. So someone who says... I can honor God without doing good works is denying one of the core purposes of our salvation. And so I don't think that's either gross ignorance or they're not even a believer. And so uh, we should not be content to be in a state where we say, I've checked the box and prayed a prayer. I've agreed with these truths about God. Because what does James say about those who know that God exists and sort of believe in him in a half-hearted kind of way? Right, yeah. 
there is po it is possible to have a fear of God that is not a right fear of God, and we ought to be aware of that possibility. So there needs to be fruit. There's a bunch of verses there. But there will be setbacks. So one of the flaws of this particular view, this is the one that I'm advocating for. One of the flaws of the view that says it's like this. Theoretically, when you're here, you should never sin. What do we discover in our experience? We do. So, you have two solutions. Either recognize that the model is flawed or redefine sin as willful disobedience to God. And so, in most of these instances, they redefine sin as, well, I didn't mean to do it, so it doesn't really count the same way as if I was intentionally trying to sin. But, there's, God still holds sin as sin, even if it was an accident, so to speak, right? We don't, we don't just get to say, well, I didn't know especially when he's revealed it in the Bible. So that's another of the reasons why this is a flawed model of understanding the Christian life. Great. I mean, 1 John 1 says, If you say you have no sin, you call God a liar. If we confess our sin, he cleanses us. And there's a sense, I think, implied in that, that this is a repeated thing that has to happen. There's a present reality alongside a future goal. Colossians 3.10 says, you have put it off. And then 2 Peter 1 says, but you're still putting it off. You're still growing and following God. So there is a sense in which we are righteous in God's sight, but we are not yet fully made righteous in our experience. Which means, the next point on the last page there, sanctification involves spiritual warfare. God's purpose is holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Sometimes people say, I want to know what God's will is. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, The will of God is this, that you abstain from immorality. God wants you to be holy. Holiness then requires a struggle against the world. 1 John chapter 2, the um, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, which don't honor God. Against the devil, James 4.7, and by extension his demons. This struggle does not look like I name the demon that's afflicting me and I cast it out in the name of Jesus. It looks like by God's power I face temptation. I ask God to deliver me from it. So my job is not to identify the specific, always the specific cause of the temptation that's in my life. My job is to resist it with God's help. Uh, we also are to war against the flesh. Galatians 5 talks about this. Romans 6 talks about this. The flesh is not the physical body. This is important for us to remember. Sometimes people will say, well, the reason that I sin is because I have a physical body, so if I could just get rid of the physical body, I wouldn't sin. Or if I oppress it or afflict it in some way, starve myself, beat myself, expose myself to cold and to heat. The monks tried that, and Martin Luther discovered it did not work. Sin followed him to the loneliest place he was, to the most miserable experience that he had, because sin is within us, and we can't drive it out through some kind of asceticism, and we certainly can't drive it out by going to the other extreme of indulgence. So, Paul said it this way, your body is an instrument. Is it an instrument for God, or is it an instrument for evil? The body in and of itself is not evil, but it's what we use for good or for evil according to God's purpose. Uh, along those lines, um, Romans 6 gives us this hope. If we are connected with Christ through salvation, 
we have died to sin, and so we don't have to live in it. We have been raised with Christ, and so we can live in newness of life, and we should. Final point there, sanctification transforms the whole person towards spiritual maturity. Um, the story of Mary in Luke 1, she believed certain things about God, she chose to obey, her desire was toward God, and she was able to rejoice despite the shame that her condition would bring. This is just one of many examples in Scripture. There is a transformation of body and soul together. There is a transformation of each component of the internal person, our mind, our will, our desires and attitudes, which are connected with our emotions. Um, Peter contrasts in 1 Peter 4, for example, between evil human desires and the will of God. And so our desires need to be changed as well. So bottom line, when it comes to transformation of ourselves into God's image, into Christ's image, there has to be change in what we think, in what we want, and in what we do, the carrying out of those actions and things that we have. Sometimes we think, well, I can't control my emotions. But emotions are the intersection of what we want and circumstances in life. I want to be on time to something, but I chose to get up late, and now there's an obstacle in the way. Anger rises to the surface. I want whatever else. We, our wants, lead to the expression of our emotions. So we can indirectly change our emotions by changing what we want with God's help. We can certainly change what we do. We must change what we think. Sometimes people say it starts here, and then it goes here, and then it goes here. And the reality is we're working on all of them at the same time sometimes. But with God's help, we can make those changes. All right. Any quick uh, thoughts or questions before we... Wrap up. Yes. You know, earlier you were talking about um, God's purposes and bringing forth glory and suffering and all that. Yeah. One of the ways I like to think about it is that um, God wants to have us to have free will so that um, we're not puppets because otherwise we're programmed to create these roles for our identity. So we have to be willing to sin on our own so he allows us to see the consequences of our own I guess I would say that we don't have absolute free will. We have, we have freedom according to our natures. If our nature is towards sin, we have freedom in the sort of sin that we can commit, but not whether or not we sin. If we have freedom toward God, then we certainly have the capacity to, um, to honor God. So sometimes people will say, well, if we don't have absolute freedom, then we're robots or puppets or that sort of thing. And I think the reality is that um, there is, God permits us a degree of freedom, but it's not unlimited freedom. Um, and 
the other thing that I have some hesitation with when we start down that line of thinking, I'm not saying that you're going there, is that um, we want to maintain our own sovereignty, autonomy, whatever the right word would be, with regards to the choices that we make because I think that we feel like in some way that lets God off the hook. And I just think that we have to be careful to hold the tensions, like for example, the Jews crucified Christ. They willfully chose to do so. It was clearly part of God's plan from the beginning, but that didn't mean that it was okay for them to do it. And if you just sit down and think about those two verses for a while, I mean, that's that's something that is just sort of profound and, and hard to comprehend for sure. So, so, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things at play here where I think we just have to be really careful to hold the hold the biblical tension of God says do this, God says it'll help me, God says sin is in the world, God says that's not an excuse for you to sin, you know, all those sorts of things. So, all right, let's pray and wrap it up. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these truths from your word. We pray that you'll bless the service to follow here in a few moments. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.